Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And we're back with episode 75. Coming from someone who just binge-watched The Hunger Games, it's giving third quarter quell energy. I mean, it's going to be as chaotic. We're coming in with a hard-hitting classic, Alien, from 1979. <sighs> this is one that took some building up to, but I survived. It really wasn't as bad as you thought it was going to be, was it? It wasn't. It wasn't. Shay and I chatted before recording, and we realized that the chest-bursting birth <laughs> may have been from a different alien movie in the franchise, so... The one that you were thinking of. The one that I was thinking of, yes. There is still very much a chest-cavity-bursting birth, but the one I remembered was not quite this one, so interesting to face a different birth in that fashion. There is a lot of reproduction in this movie, and we're gonna talk about it. But starting out with our ladies, we have Ellen Ripley, who is iconic as a final girl. She's played by Sigourney Weaver. I just wrote Mommy, (laughs) also known for the Alien franchise sequels, Ghostbusters, The Village, Cabin in the Woods, the Avatar franchise, A Monster Calls, obviously a million other things, and one of our favorites being Holes. We need to watch Holes. Yeah. (laughs) Let us know if you want us to cover holes. No. (laughs) Fun facts. Alien is actually her third acting credit, but the one credited for her rise to fame, Mm -hmm. earning her a BAFTA nomination for Most Promising Newcomer. Wow. Wow. And she now has her own wiki page for all of her roles. Oh, yes. You have to navigate to a whole other page (laughs) just to see her awards, nominations, and roles. Speaking of nominations, she was also nominated for an Oscar and Golden Globe for her performance in Aliens sequel, Aliens. She did win a Saturn Award, which I didn't realize because we've talked about the Saturn Awards before. The Saturn Awards are presented by the Academy for Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. So they're specifically geared toward this genre, which I had no idea about. Neither. But she did win a Saturn Award for her performance in Aliens, which is the sequel, and was nominated for Aliens 3 in 1993, but was beat out by Virginia Madsen and Candyman. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wait, I love this. I know. I know. There's so many things happening. So our other lady is Joan Lambert. Now she is played by Veronica Cartwright, who we know as Nancy in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. She's also in The Birds, Candyman, Farewell to Flesh, which is a sequel to Candyman, Scary Movie 2, The Town That Dreaded Sundown remake. Also, fun facts, she was originally cast as Ripley before being cast as Lambert and won a Saturn Award for Best Supporting Actress for her role in this film. Nice. Going into some pre-plot trivia, the movie's directed by Ridley Scott in his second feature film as a director. His other prominent horror-adjacent credits include Blade Runner, Hannibal, which is the sequel to Silence of the Lambs, The Martian, the Alien sequels, Prometheus and Alien Covenant, and this isn't horror, but most recently, The House of Gucci. Oh, okay. He has many film accolades in his career, including being knighted by Queen Elizabeth II in 2003 for services to the British film industry. (laughs) And being inducted into the Science Fiction Hall of Fame in 2007 and receiving a Hollywood star. The story is by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett. And special effects are by H.R. Geiger and Carlo Rambaldi, who together would win the 1980 Academy Award for Visual Effects for their design of The Alien. I love that this movie and this franchise is recognized by the Oscars. Oh, yeah. 100%. That is really neat. But that's what's weird about it, because I think this movie, if you're thinking about genre, is technically Mm sci-fi, which is still continuing that conversation we've had before about horror not being recognized on the big stage a lot of times. Oh, so even though it has horrific elements. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay, I see what you're saying. So just some fun facts about the creature design for the alien. The final head had about 900 moving parts and points of articulation, and part of a real human skull was used as the face hidden underneath the smooth, translucent cover of the head. How do you think they could get away with that today? Probably not. (laughs) It's also like how in Poltergeist they used real skeletons in the pool scene. Oh, that's right. We have to watch that. Well, we covered it in our first times episode. Maybe we should go back and cover it for real. And cover Idle Hands. I would really like to. I would like to revisit Idle Hands again. Oh my gosh. Let us know (laughs) if you want us to do that. (laughs) 
Copious amounts of KY jelly was used to simulate the saliva and give the alien an overall slimy appearance, and shredded condoms were used to create tendons for the beast's ferocious jaws. I love how it looks phallic, and it's made of fallacies. And the creature's vocalizations were provided by Percy Edwards, a voice artist famous for providing bird sounds for British television throughout the (laughs) 1960s and 70s, (laughs) as well as whale sounds for orca killer whale. I just thought that was very funny, so I wanted to include that. (laughs) For most of the film scenes, the alien was portrayed by Balaji Badejo, and a latex costume was made to fit his slender 6-foot, 10-inch frame. Oh, my word. Taking a full-body plaster cast... Padejo attended Tai Chi and mime classes to create convincing movements for the alien, and he was discovered by production sitting in a pub and disappeared into anonymity after this role, not acting in anything since. (laughs) Wait, that's so cool. It's very spooky of him. It is. And I like that it's all done practically, too. Like, he's wearing, like, a full costume for the whole thing. So one of the writers, Shuset, said that he wrote all of the roles generically. They have a note in the script that explicitly states, the crew is unisex and all parts are interchangeable for men or women. This freed director Ridley Scott and casting directors Mary Selway and Mary Goldberg to interpret the characters as they pleased and to cast accordingly. They wanted the Nostromo's crew to resemble astronauts working in a realistic environment, a concept summarized as truckers in space. Oh my gosh. Ripley's character was originally written to be more masculine, but they did not change this characterization when Sigourney Weaver was cast, which I think is very interesting considering how like we read Ripley as a woman and her gender performance and all that kind of stuff. Ridley Scott stated that in casting the role of Ripley, it ultimately came down between Sigourney Weaver and Meryl Streep. What? The two actresses had been college mates at Yale. Really? Wow. Can you imagine Meryl Streep in Alien? I can, but it's so perfect for Sigourney Weaver. I feel like it just set her up on such a specific trajectory. Not that she can't do anything under the sun, because she can. Even though this is the first time I've seen Alien, I always picture her in roles like this, where she's playing really strong, almost more masculine roles. Like even her small role in Cabin in the Woods, even her role in The Village, like these positions of power that she as a woman holds. Not that Meryl Streep doesn't do the same, but I feel like Sigourney Weaver's roles for me stand out when she's playing those kinds of characters. So this bit of trivia comes very similar to our Hills Have Eyes trivia. Filming was very strenuous on the actors due to the spacesuits being bulky with little (laughs) ventilation, causing the need for nurses with oxygen tanks to be on standby during filming, as many of the actors nearly passed out from heat exhaustion. Yeah, that sounds like no fun. Obviously, one of the best parts of this movie is Jonesy the cat. Four identical cats were used to play Jonesy, who Sigourney Weaver was afraid she was allergic to, but it actually ended up being that she was allergic to the chemical that they sprayed on their skin to make them look sweaty all of the time. Because oh. she was very heartbroken that they kept bringing in new cats that she, and she was allergic to all of them. But there's like a film that they used to make them look sweaty, and she was allergic to that. But she was very afraid that she was allergic to Jonesy, but she didn't end up being allergic to Jonesy. Oh, good. And I put this in here specifically for you because I know you love these little gimmick things. Okay. The first test screening of the movie was hampered by sound issues. It only got a lukewarm reception. But by the second screening, the makers had their first indication that the movie was as scary as they hoped. Reportedly, attendants screamed in terror and the wife of 20th Century Fox president Alan Ladd got so scared that she refused to leave her house for over a day. (laughs) Several of the crew members later attended screenings where audience responses surpassed their wildest predictions, including people leaving the first row and requesting places farther from the screen. People yelling at the characters not to do certain things, cinema personnel passing out, people fleeing to the toilets and stuffing the speakers there with napkins to drown out the sounds, and restrooms littered with vomit. This is so extreme. (laughs) I know you love this shit, so I put this in here specifically for you. This is beyond what my wildest dreams could have hoped for. Stuffing the speakers. Everything I'm reading is me. So let's get into it. Yeah, let's get into it. So we start with a very, very, very long sequence. (laughs) Of course, we have the opening credits appearing in front of a space scape. We're looking at a planet with big, large rings. I'm thinking Saturn, but this is probably in a whole other galaxy. 
And I wrote, you must be so excited because there's text on a screen. I love text on a screen. Oh, yeah. I didn't write down what the text said. I was too busy being like mesmerized by it. (laughs) I have it. Of course you do. It says commercial towing vehicle, the Nostromo, which is the name of the spacecraft. Crew, seven. Cargo, refinery processing 20 million tons of mineral ore. Course, returning to Earth. What is a commercial towing space? So from what I understand of this, and this is where this truckers in space comes from. They, from what I understand, are essentially taking minerals from one part of the galaxy and they are just towing it back to Earth for study. So they are just the truck drivers. So they like picked up a load somewhere and they are bringing it back to Earth. So I guess mineral ore is just specimens for them to study, which I guess informs why they feel as though they need to stop and do the things that they do otherwise because they need to continue to collect specimens for study. Okay, great. We, again, continue this establishing situation by moving inside the ship. We have a very, very large ship. This is huge. I can't believe that a ship this large only has a seven-person crew because I feel like that's enough to maybe cover one wing of this monstrous spaceship. But alas, we are inside the ship. We haven't met any crew yet. We're too busy looking at empty hallways and empty corridors. We get the sense that the ship is sleeping very peacefully. Then, all of a sudden... We are in a room, we can see, I guess it looks like at least five of these chambers. I guess there must be seven because there's seven people. It's weird because they're all circled around like a center thing, like in a clock. So we can't see all of them no matter what perspective we're in. Right. But we're waking up or we're seeing first our officer Kane wakes up from his chamber sleep. We see other people beginning to wake up. Everyone's kind of in like sleep clothes, right? They're very tired. They're very stiff. They're coming out of this hyper sleep state and they congregate to eat some food. They're all hungry as hell, which absolutely. But then they realize that unlike their previous assumption that they were getting close to earth, which is why they were brought out of their hyper sleep. They're actually very, very far away from Earth, and they were brought out of their sleep because they are getting signals from some kind of ship on a nearby moon. Yes, and they learned this through a character named Mother, who (laughs) I just kept thinking was like Karen and SpongeBob. (laughs) Yeah. Like the person that Plankton's girlfriend is. Like it's just this computer that IMs them and talks to them. And we see our captain, Captain Dallas, IMing her back and forth as to like, what should we do, mother? And like, that's what they call her. And it's very funny. But Dallas confirms that mother informed them that they're only halfway to Earth. And she interrupted their journey because certain conditions arose. She picked up an intercepted transmission that she wants them to check out. It could potentially be an SOS, and they are obligated to check it out. I wrote, much to Parker's dismay, lol. Parker is speaking so much sense in this moment, Oh, yes. One of the first conversations that the crew has when they wake up is Parker voicing his grievances that only some of the crew gets a certain amount of pay. Parker is hoping that when they get back, they'll get some bonuses. I guess there's some like cash incentive on this job. Maybe if you bring back a certain amount of mineral ore, you get a bonus. But now the conversation of money comes up again because Parker, one of our mechanics, is like, hell no. Why are we going to land on this planet? It doesn't make any sense. But then I think it's Dallas or maybe Kane reminds him, you know, it is our job. We have to stop and respond to the signal or else we won't get paid at all for the job that we've done. So Parker's like, fine, we'll do it. And Parker, his fellow technician is named Brett. And they are the only two people who know how to like fix this massive, massive ship. I feel like the ship is like the size of two football fields. Probably. Like all directions. Well, that's where I think the actual ship itself is probably smaller and what they're towing is larger, Uh, where it's like, think about the inside of a truck is kind of small, but what they're towing is like lots and lots of tons of minerals that they're not actually having access to. I'm learning so much. Thank you so much for helping me understand. (laughs) They disengage from the Nostromo in a smaller vessel. So now they're not in the larger spaceship. They're in like a smaller spaceship to explore a nearby planet. They have a little bit of a bumpy ride, which also lasts a very long time, but they land. There's some damages to the ship, though, because of some space storms, and that means they're going to be stuck on this neighboring planet for at least a day. And this is where we're getting some, I wrote, like, casual misogyny toward Ripley and Lambert. 
Ripley is actually second in command on the ship to Dallas, but you can see that there's a lot of tension brewing between her and Ash, who is the scientist on board. He is the person who is really focused on studying the minerals and collecting the minerals and overseeing all of those operations because he knows what their employer wants to study. So we're starting to see some misogyny brewing between some of the men on the ship and Ripley specifically for telling them what to do. Ash performs a scan of the elements they're looking for, and Dallas, Kane, and Lambert suit up to go collect the matter while Ash monitors their situation. Meanwhile, Ripley, Brett, and Parker argue more about money while performing repairs. <laughs> and again, this tension is brewing. And this is also where we meet Jonesy for the first time. Jonesy the orange cat on the Nostromo. I was so delighted to see Jonesy. But also, still not quite enough to change the fact that I am terrified for the three people who have left the ship. This planet, or moon rather, does not look friendly at all. It's really windy. And they find this broken down, deserted spaceship. And they go approach it. They go inside. And they find this large alien carcass, which they seem so calm about. I was like, they get real comfortable real quick, getting real close to it. (laughs) I can't, I don't know if it's because they're wearing spacesuits and space helmets that they don't feel scared for their faces. I wrote, Lambert is a woman of the people because she keeps saying, let's get out of here. I mean, come the fuck on. And we're under the impression that even though this team is supposed to respond to signals, like, I don't think we're under the impression that this reality is accustomed to dealing with different life forces. Because Ash says something later, like, we've never seen a life force like this or a life force other than humans. So I'm like, why are you so comfortable approaching these non-human entities I think it would be the most scary thing ever because you don't know what they're capable of or what they're made of. Like, this is a whole different atmosphere, a whole different situation. Like, why are you so comfortable? Especially because Ripley is now back with Ash. She looks at the transmission that Mother gave them herself and says that it doesn't actually look like an SOS. It looks like a warning. Meanwhile, freaking Kane, who is the most comfortable with his face of all of them, has found this like room full of these little pods. And he goes up to these pods. I mean, they all kind of have these outer layers. You can tell that they're very much living, breathing pods. He realizes that there's something living on the inside and he reaches out to touch one. Why? I don't know. I said on this episode of This Is Why Women Live Longer Than Men, don't (laughs) touch it. Well, he does. And then he falls into the pit of them. (laughs) He does fall into the pit. He falls into a pit of them. (laughs) Well, one of them latches onto his helmet. Next thing we know, Lambert and Dallas are on their way back with Kane's unconscious body. They are trying to gain access into the ship, but Ripley says no. She cites quarantine rules. They cannot come back into the ship for 24 hours because they have come into contact with these non-Earth beings. But even though, you know, Ripley firmly puts her foot down, freaking Ash is already downstairs by the door to the outside itself and uses his own like key pass to open the doors and let them in. So now this entity attached to Kane's face is in the building and he is taken to the hospital room. Fun fact, in the scene that the face hugger attaches itself to Kane, it is sheep intestines shot out of a cannon. I couldn't have even imagined anything worse than that. That's actually the worst. A cannon. Like a high pressurized little shoot. Like a t-shirt cannon that you shoot off at a hockey game. Oh, yeah. And by the way, (laughs) I hate hate this part. (laughs) I hate this part. (laughs) All the scenes with the fully grown alien do not compare to the... And the fact that it's called a face hugger. It's called a face hugger. Well, at this point, the face hugger has buried itself into Kane's helmet. So it is like fully attached to his face and he's unconscious and they try to get the face hugger off. But if they try to irritate it, it tightens its tentacles around Kane's neck tighter. They try to cut it off. But when, I don't know, Ash or Dallas cuts one of the tentacles... The quote unquote blood falls to the floor and it's this crazy acidic liquid that eats through like three floors of the spaceship. So they're like, clearly we can't do this. 
we're just gonna have to put Kane with this thing on his face in a little tiny room. Just let him uh, see what happens. Well, also what they surmise, and if you have to think about what this thing looks like, look at a hybrid between an octopus and a stingray, maybe. Yeah, that's a great visual. Ash reveals that there is an appendage down Kane's throat, keeping him alive. So he's comatose, but the appendage down his throat is feeding him oxygen. So if they do take the face hugger off, he may die. So that is part of the rationale that they use that they just need to let nature take its course, especially when blood starts burning through all the floors. It's a no for me. All of it is a no from me. It's a no for me. I was peeking through my fingers like a child the whole time this thing was on this guy's face. So everyone just kind of goes back to business. People are resuming repairs. Ash is monitoring Kane to examine the creature. And then Ripley arrives to check on Kane and their guest, LOL. Um... <laughs> Ash seems reluctant to give up information, but ends up telling her that the creature sheds cells and replaces them with a silicone, making it resistant to environmental conditions, aka it's a little indestructible. Then Ripley's like, and you let him in. Ripley then reminds Ash that when Dallas and Kane are off the ship, which they both were at the time of the expedition, Ripley is the senior officer. And Ash risked everybody's life by breaking quarantine protocol and letting them back on the ship. And I was just like, get him, Ripley. Like, Ripley is, like, digging into this man, being like, you undermined me, you disrespected my authority, and Ash is trying to, like, write it off and do all those types of things, and Ripley's, like, not letting him have it, and it's great. It is so great. This is such a good scene. Everything she says is so on point, and the way that she says it, she's just such a good leader. She is so pointed and specific, and you cannot breach her logic. Can we talk about, like, how she looks? Like, how her and Lambert look. They got the Ghostbusters jumpsuits on. Ripley's got, does she have bangs? Does she have like a little bit of fringe? Yeah, she has like a mop top. Her hair kind of reminds me of who is the redhead from Orange is the New Black? Oh, Natasha Lyonne. Um, Nikki. No. Yes. Is it Nikki? That actress. Yes. It's like that, but her hair is just shorter. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But it's got the layers of curls. It's very 1980s. Whereas Lambert has this choppy pixie cut cut situation. Both are giving butch supremacy, personally, Yeah, for me. It's great. I love them. Ash radios to Dallas later to come look at Kane because something interesting happens. And that interesting thing is that the creature has evacuated the dance floor, the dance floor being Kane's face. So now Kane is laying there unconscious and the facehugger is nowhere to be seen. Yeah, so they start looking for this thing, which again, had a little bit of a problem with the scene because we know that this is the thing that attaches itself to faces. Mm-hmm. But they're just like, let me look under the bed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they're, they're using their faces everywhere. They're looking into these closed corners. I'm sure they do this kind of thing on purpose because they know that we know that that is really scary to do with a thing that attaches itself to faces. Just when we think this thing might get Ripley, it falls a little bit into screen, but then falls out of the screen. It is dead-ish. And this is where they get way too close to it. So close to this thing that literally attaches itself to faces. I said, they studied the sashimi with their faces way too close for my liking. (laughs) Oh my god, yes. It kind of looks like the inside of like an oyster. It's very vaginal. It is very vaginal. But yes, way too close to this thing. What do they decide to do with it? Because it doesn't seem quite dead. I think they send it off into space. That's right. They shoot it out. Good choice. (laughs) Good choice. (laughs) Like, imagine that little tube that you send your mail through when you go through, like, the (laughs) drive-thru bank. They send that out into space. Ripley then approaches Dallas and says that, I don't trust Ash. He was only put on this expedition two days before takeoff. He's undermining me. And Dallas is like, just let Ash do his job. I'm just trying to get home. I don't want to hear your shit right now. They take off from the planet and reattach to the Nostromo. They find out they are 10 months from Earth. So they are preparing themselves to kind of like go back to sleep. But then Kane is awake. Yes, he wakes up. He's a little bit weak. He has some spotty memory of what happened, but he's like, I'm hungry. So they sit down at their little like kitchen mess hall area again, and they start to eat these like space noodles. But then Kane starts feeling sick. He starts convulsing. Things get really serious. They lay him down on the table and then, oop, an alien pops out of his gut, hisses at everybody, and then runs away. And what does this alien look like? 
A penis. A dick. Everything's a dick. Everything's a dick. And the, yeah, really interesting moment. Really interesting. Like a dick with teeth. Who calls it Kane's baby later? Ash. Yeah, of course he does. So yeah, Kane gives birth to this thing. Some during the plot trivia. Ooh. For the filming of the chestburster scene, the cast members knew the creature would be bursting out of actor John Hurt and had seen the chestburster puppet, but they had been told that fake blood would be used and bursting out in every direction using high-pressure pumps and squibs. The scene was shot in one take using an artificial torso filled with blood and viscera. Hurt's head and arms coming up from underneath the table, but the chestburster was shoved up through the torso by a puppeteer held on a stick. When the creature burst through the chest, a stream of blood shot directly at Veronica Cartwright, shocking her enough that she fell over and went into hysterics. According to another actor, Tom Skerritt, what you saw on camera was a real response. She had no idea what the hell happened. All of a sudden, this thing just came up and hit her in the face. The creature then (laughs) runs off camera, an effect accomplished by cutting a slit in the table for the puppeteer's stick to go through and passing through an air hose through the puppet's tail to make it whip about. Oh, it whips about. Oh, I missed this during the autopsy scene, but when we were talking about the sashimi, the dead (laughs) face hugger that Ash autopsies was made using fresh shellfish, four oysters, and a sheep kidney to recreate its organs. Filming had to be done quickly because the organic material would go bad very fast under the studio lights. Wow. Okay. (laughs) And we're processing, and we're taking it in. And Kane is dead. Yeah, Kane is definitely dead. So they also sent him through the mail chute. Yes, they wrap him up, spit him out. Yep. In a scene that's a little bit comical. I was like, they yeet Kane's body into space unceremoniously. I think Dallas is like, does anyone want to say anything? And everyone's like, nope. And they just like fucking like yeet him into space. It's great. I guess it's kind of like interesting to think about. Like you would think because these people are on a spaceship that they have gotten really close, but it seems like they're sleeping most of the time. They're either sleeping, waking up to work, going back to sleep and then going home. So it's kind of like maybe they just really don't know each other that well. Yeah, or like, imagine being only with your coworkers day in and day out for like, at this point, years. Yeah. So you're thinking of, in that moment, it's like, think of every time this dude fucking annoyed you. <laughs> every time you wanted to <laughs> shove him into this little male shoot. But now, of course, they have a baby alien on the loose and they have to go find it. So they try to weapon up and find where this thing has gotten to. Ash conveniently comes up with this machine that can detect movement. It's like some sort of detecting changes in air density. So if there's a being there, it'll detect it. Some futuristic shit. They go to look for this thing. Initially, Brett is with Ripley and Parker. They think they're going to find the alien in one of the lockers, but it turns out to be Jonesy the cat. The Jonesy jump scares in this movie are excellently placed. Mm-hmm. So Ripley's like, ugh. What a bust, Brett, go get Jonesy. So Brett goes off to find Jonesy. And what is this scene? Like, this <laughs> this is a moment right here. Okay, yeah. So this <laughs> cat is fucking shit up in a tank somewhere and scurries out of the room. So then Brett is trying to follow her. And then I'm like, we enter a very Hellraiser room. It's wet, drippy, and a shit ton of chains hanging from the ceiling. And this is where I wrote, I don't know how space works, but where is this rain coming from? And why do you feel safe drinking it? What is going on? Because essentially, it looks like there's a hole in the ceiling and that rain is coming through it. And Brett is just kind of standing under this little bit of rain and like drinking fresh water. But I'm like, what do you mean? Like, how can that be happening in a ship? I don't understand. Where is it coming from? Well, does it rain in space? I think later because we find out this alien is so wet that it's like the alien. But it's like in a perfect circle. You think it's just condensation coming from the alien? Yeah. I think it's like the alien's moisture. Oh, that's hot. Well, (laughs) that's why I was like, because then when the alien dis Okay, the alien descends (laughs) and opens its mouth and then a tinier mouth extends and opens up and grabs Brett and kills him. So the head has a head. The head has a head. The alien must eat him or like maybe use its acidic makings to somehow dissolve him because they make comments a couple times when people die, there's no body or anything. But the alien's mouth is so wet. It's literally dripping. It's KY jelly. It's KY jelly. It's lubricated, which would help if you're literally eating a man. Is this the wet that was dripping down onto Brett's face? That he was just taking in his mouth very graciously. But 
But like, where else would it have been coming from? That's my thinking. I don't know. Like, does it rain in space? I don't understand. How can you have the thing well, open? Well, they're in the sky. They're not even on a planet I at know, this point, I'm are confused. they? No. They're, yeah, you're right. They're in the sky. They're back on the ship. Yeah. I also want to know <laughs> the maturation time. Because last time we saw this alien, it was like a little baby snake. Yeah. Generously. It, and now it is a man. It's like it's been a couple minutes. hours. <laughs> yeah. At, at most. Least. Hopefully, at least. Yeah. Yeah, and this is the six foot ten actor. I'm assuming yeah. that's now in costume. Okay. <laughs> oh god. The team is reconvened. Parker and Ripley relay what happens to Brett. I think they hear him scream, and they decide that they need to look in the air ducts. And this is where Ash says, "Oh, it was Kane's son." And I was like, side eye, side eye. <laughs> <laughs> But they decide that they're going to send Dallas in there with a flamethrower. And this is even Ash's idea. He's like, most animals are afraid of fire. Because this team doesn't really know how to kill this alien. They're just trying to take an educated guess. They weren't taught this in trucker and space school. But yeah, he said throwing heat into the ducts is going to draw it out somehow. Mm -hmm. So that's why they put heating vents into the air ducts. And then they send Dallas in with a flamethrower trying to flush it out one side where there would be a group of people waiting no matter what side it chose. And they could kill it in theory. And then after a very long air duct search, of course, the alien gets to Dallas and rids of him. I said, I love that it looks like the xenomorph just wants a hug, lol. Because it just kind of pops out with his arms open, like, gotcha. (laughs) Yeah, it does look like that. These are very quick scenes. This is so much less graphic than I thought. We really don't see the alien very much in this movie. I forgot that we really didn't see him this much in the original. We see a lot more of them in the sequels. I always watch alien sequels when they're on. Like if they're just like on sci-fi, they're on. I mean, after the face hugger is out of the picture, it gets a lot easier to watch. For me, personally. (laughs) So the team regathers, everyone's pissed and panicking. Some people want to abandon ship. Some people want to stick to Dallas's plan. Ripley is sick of Ash's shit at this point. Mm -hmm. Ripley decides to go speak to Mother because now that Dallas is gone, she is now the head of the ship. So she goes and speaks to Mother and reveals the special order that rerouted them. The transmission was actually in order to collect specimens for study with the note crew expendable. And Ash knew about it. They want to try to get off the ship, but I think the escape pod only has two hypersleep chambers. Yes. And there's four of them at this point. So yeah, then Ripley goes in and she finds out about this plan and she's like, what the fuck? Ash walks up on her. Yeah, he knows. And so they get in a huge fight where eventually Parker and Lambert come in and aid with the situation. Parker is able to knock Ash's head off and reveal that he's actually a robot. Yeah, we are entering into the sci-fi territory. And this is where the sequels do a really good job at expanding upon the enterprise that is Weyland yutani which is the company that funds all of this alien expedition and all their insidiousness. So they're the ones who replaced, you know, an actual scientist with this android that would follow their mission and would be able to survive the elements, all things considered. It's also interesting that the way that Ash tries to silence Ripley is by shoving a rolled up newspaper into her mouth. Yes, very phallic. Yeah. It is a dick, like yeah. 100%. Yeah, it's very, very sexual assaulty. Yeah, like literally the vertical way, not even the horizontal way, which yeah. would make so much more sense if you were trying to think like of like- Like a gag like, or something. Yes. yes. But no, it was trying to shove a rolled up newspaper like down her throat. Even robots are misogynistic. They are. But I also love this moment because when his head is knocked off, he starts spurting this like white liquid. Everything's ejaculation. Everything's ejaculation. But earlier we saw Ash drinking white liquid and I was like, what is this guy what doing this drinking milk? milk on a spaceship? How could you ever keep that good? Like, <laughs> Where are the cows in space? You know, seriously. But it does all make sense. So I did kind of appreciate the milk moment ended up making sense. It was like his little motor Mommy's oil. milk. Yeah. Mother's milk. Mother's literal milk because he's literally working off of mother's orders. Wow. Liquid is really important in this movie. This movie's very horny. There's a lot. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> so Ripley then fills Lambert and Parker in on how Ash was sent to protect the mission of collecting the alien life forms. 
They end up hooking Ash back up to power to try to gain information out of him on how to kill the alien. His talking head wakes up and confirms that the first priority was bringing the life forms back. But when Ripley asks how to kill it, Ash says that they can't. You don't know what you're dealing with. A perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched by its hostility. I admire its purity. A survivor. Unclouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. Oh, so ice cold. Yeah, and then Parker sets him on fire. Yeah, and his face melts in a pretty cool scene. I'm assuming that's practical. Everything's practical. Uh, Everything in this movie, I imagine, has to be. It was cool. But Ripley says that they're going to blow up the fucking ship and take the shuttle out of there, the three of them, Mm -hmm. and just figure it the fuck out. Yeah, so while Ripley is preparing the escape shuttle, she hears Jones meowing, and she goes to try to find Jones. Meanwhile, Lambert and Parker are together and they're gathering equipment so loudly. I wrote that too, yeah. So loudly. Like for a second, I was like, wait, did I miss something? And they're trying to be like a decoy. I literally was like, you guys must be trying seriously. Like I know these are metal canisters and they are loud. And you're trying to be fast. But you are throwing them around like confetti. Okay. And not surprisingly, the alien does show up and kill them both. (laughs) So that means Ripley is the only one left. With, of course, Jonesy. Who is getting everybody killed. Like, if she wasn't off on her side quest looking for Jonesy, she would have been fine. Mm -hmm. There's also this really interesting scene that's very reminiscent of the Evil Dead, which is coming up for us. But the alien's tail snakes its way very seductively up Lambert's leg before it kills her. It was very upsetting. Anything like that makes me think of, like, Freddy in the bathtub. Exactly. Oh, it's terrifying. So Ripley runs back to begin the detonation. And I wrote, I love how this detonation protocol reads so calm and matter of fact, I would be losing my goddamn mind with how many buttons there are. Oh my God, there are like screws. (laughs) It's a bop it. It's a bop it in in space on how to detonate this ship. Bop it, twist it, blow it up. Lick it. There's so much (laughs) happening. But essentially the rules are once she starts detonation, she gets five minutes to change your mind. I need mother to have a sassy tone to be like, okay, bitch, you want to blow me up? Fine. But if your dumbass changes its mind, I'm only giving you five minutes. Because if you don't change your mind in five minutes, I will blow the ship up in another five minutes. So we have five minutes. Ripley makes it back to the escape pod, which also feels very far away from the self-destruct button. Like, wouldn't you want them to be close to each other? Yeah. So a little bit. Look, uh, we're engineers now and we would have done things (laughs) a little differently. She runs to get on the ship, but the alien is in the way. So she drops Jonesy's carrier, which I love this like space carrier that she has for Jonesy that she just like whips out of a closet at one point. (laughs) I'm like, this is too... Where was this the rest of the movie? This is very earthly. This is a very earthly storage moment. But she runs back to the self-destruct button to try to undo it. Plot twist. I guess this is where Mother's sass comes in. She's like, nope, but I will give you five more minutes. (laughs) And Ripley's like, you bitch. (laughs) Yeah. Ripley heads back to the shuttle with a flamethrower, and it's very atmospheric, right? There's lots of loud blaring, there's lights flashing, she's very sweaty, there's steam blowing. She grabs Jonesy back, they get into the shuttle just as the ship begins to blow up. They clear the Nostromo just as it explodes, and I wrote, we're here with just a butch and her emotional support cat, as it should be. Mm-hmm. She prepares the sleep chamber so she can shuttle her way back to Earth. She takes off her very, very sweaty clothing. She gets down into her, like, sleepwear. This is such an interesting moment, because in the horror movies that I've seen, which everybody knows all the horror movies I've seen, because we've literally covered them all on the like, <laughs> this is literally my experience. Usually, like, the seductive woman undressing takes place usually towards the beginning. This is taking place towards the end. And Ripley is wearing the smallest pair of underwear I've ever seen mm-hmm. in my life. It makes it halfway up her butt. There is no way that's comfortable. But also (laughs) she's wearing like the white tank top with no bra underneath, which is very mask of her. So it's like the combination Mm -hmm. between like the very cheeky underwear versus the very matter of fact undershirt. It's great. I wrote, I'm like, okay, Miss Weaver, you look nice. (laughs) But it makes it even worse when she's standing over by one of the, I don't know, control panels. And we see something that looks a lot like an alien head. I wrote, the alien is Jonesy coded. Being in spaces it shouldn't be. (laughs) Because it's it's attached itself behind all these control panels. And that's where Jonesy was half the movies, just hiding in the fucking control panels. I'm like, are you Jonesy? Are we going to domesticate the alien? Make it a household pet? 
But no, Ripley then decides to put on a spacesuit. She weaponizes herself and then she begins singing to herself out of her anxiety. What did you think about this? I love this moment. I have done this before. <laughs> <laughs> like if I am in a situation where I am like nervous or like if I need to hype myself up to do something, I will like whisper sing to myself kind of like what she's doing. It just like maybe like one verse. And sometimes I don't even realize I'm doing it. I'll just be like, you are my sunshine. <laughs> what song is she even singing? You are my lucky star or something. Yes. She's like whisper singing it to herself. She's like trying to soothe herself as she slowly slips into a space suit, sips it up, gets her helmet off. She has a plan. We don't know what it is yet. Jonesy, by the way, is already in one of the chambers. So she's protected. Or he, I don't know. I don't know. Jonesy is protected. She sings herself over to get in one of the chairs. She puts her seatbelt on as the alien is just kind of like lurking around. He's really taking his time he's trying not being aggressive. to not He's getting comfortable time. for the ride, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, he is. Part of me is like, does the alien know? Like the alien doesn't know how to work this ship. Like does the alien know that he has to rely on Ripley to survive? Anyway, interesting thought, but she opens a door <laughs> with a button. The alien flies out but holds on to the side of the open door with his long long fingernails. Ripley blasts the rockets, which incinerate the alien and send him flying off into oblivion. (laughs) And the movie ends with Ripley narrating the summary of events, saying that she's the last survivor of the Nostromo and that she is rooting herself back to Earth and her and Jonesy go to bed. And that's the end of the movie. It has me thinking, I am really curious about the sequels because now I'm like, okay, well, if her company was corrupted, didn't give a shit about her, what's going to happen to her when she's the only one that returns with no alien? Are they going to be mad at her? They send her back out. That's the sequel. Yeah, I'm very interested. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Aliens is a great movie. Are there any more face things? I think so. (sighs) All right. So leading into some post-plot trivia, I had said this earlier, but the xenomorph, so the large alien and the facehugger only appear on screen for about four minutes. Director Ridley Scott purposefully reduced the amount of screen time to make its limited appearance all the more scary. And this was just a fun one. Like, I read this one on IMDb Trivia, and I just laughed out loud. This movie passes the Bechdel test. Oh, my gosh. Because there's two lady characters. They have conversations with each other, and it's not about men. I bet they would have rather been talking about men (laughs) than an alien and trying to hunt it down in the air ducts. This is on the aliens, and this actually comes from the Xenomorph Wiki, which the Xenomorph has its own Wikipedia page. Excellent. Unlike many other extraterrestrial races in science fiction, the aliens are not sapient toolmakers. They lack a technological civilization of any kind and instead are primal predatory creatures with no higher goal other than the preservation and propagation of their own species by any means necessary up to and including the elimination of other life forms that may pose a threat to their existence. Like wasps or termites, aliens are eusocial, with a single fertile queen breeding a castle of warriors, workers, and other specialist strains. The alien's biological life cycle involves traumatic implantation of endoparasitoid larvae inside living hosts, and these chestburster larvae erupt from the host's body after a short incubation period, mature into adulthood within hours, and seek out more hosts for implementation. Inspired after waking from a dream, writer Ronald Shusett said, I have an idea. The monster screws one of them, planting its egg in his body and then bursting out of his chest. Both writers realized the idea had never been done before, and it subsequently became the core of the film. This is a movie about alien interspecies rape, writer Dan O'Bannon said in the documentary Alien Evolution. That's scary because it hits all of our buttons. O'Bannon felt that the symbolism of homosexual oral rape was an effective means of discomforting male viewers. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you look at the core of what the alien is trying to do, it's trying to spread its seed. It's trying to use live hosts to create humanoids. I read somewhere else, too, that because the facehugger chose Cain... That's why the xenomorph is man-like, like has two legs and two arms, because Kane is a parent. Oh, I see. That makes sense. 
there's a sequence in one of the alien sequels where I don't know if it's Ripley herself or a woman on board gets hit with a face hugger. And there's literally like a scene where they perform a very botched abortion to get it out before the chest bursting can happen. It's a different life form. It takes a different form. Oh, really? Yeah. So. Oh, my God. It's so uncomfortable to think about. I mean, if you look at the shape of the xenomorph, like it's a big dick walking around. Mm-hmm. And the face hugger is a vagina. Yeah. But the face hugger is the one that impregnates Kane. Yeah. This movie is very, 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 very sexual, which is why I've been wanting to cover it for so long, just because there's just so much to talk about in terms of what it's saying about assault, what it's saying about gender dynamics, what it's saying about mm-hmm. forced motherhood or mm. birth. And I do think that having Kane be the one impregnated, I think that that is such an interesting layer of horror because, you know, we've seen women taken advantage of and, mm-hmm. and forcefully impregnated, but having a man experience that, that's completely different. And it does add a, a layer of horror that I imagine at this time just had not been really explored yet. Yeah, that's not a fear that men have to live with. Not that men don't have to fear being assaulted or that men aren't assaulted, but cisgender men are not worried about being impregnated. That is a whole new level where it's like you're creating a whole new life cycle here and imagine that world and it's not human. And it's like, yeah, that's fucking terrifying. So the last thing I have is on Ripley's gender, because I just think it is so fun just (laughs) seeing like mask of center women, especially one as powerful as her. I think she's going to fuck shit up in March Madness as well. Oh, yeah. So this comes from (laughs) the article, How Alien Queered the Binaries of Traditional Gender by Michaela Barton. And they write, in most media of the time, a character played by a woman may slip into certain categories. In horror, a popular one is the damsel in distress. Ripley, in particular, is a big standout in horror as they refuse to slip into gender-coded typical behaviors such as this. A female character acting like Ripley is obviously not monumental in today's standards, but in the 70s, where extreme performance of gender was the norm in the media, this dismissal of gender binary stereotypes for Ripley was notable. Other categories for characters played by women were the mother or the seductress. Of course, these are not representative of what defines womanhood in real life, but in media, predominantly created by men, these were the usual binaries on show. Interestingly, the main conflicts driving Ripley's story revolves around their refusal to fit neatly into boxes of motherhood or seductress. The big titular villain of this franchise is the alien, a creature whose purpose is to spread her spawn far and wide. To me, she is representative of the bastardized version of motherhood. The alien is a monstrous exaggeration of traditionally female qualities from a restricted misogynistic perspective. She is a literal baby boomer (laughs) whose purpose can be reduced down to that of her biology. The alien forces a stage of motherhood onto her victims, incubation, as they become surrogates for her spawn. If we regard the alien as a twisted representation of femininity, then Ripley's prolonged fight against this creature can represent their continued refusal to assimilate into this supposed binary. If we discuss Alien as separate from the series, Ripley wasn't even a mother in the original film. Ripley was granted freedom from this expected gender roles of media, and they actively fought against the impending threat of being reduced down to biology. Yeah, what do you think about all this? I think that's really interesting. Like the idea that the alien cannot get to her in this context redefines the final girl. Her avoiding the alien is her avoiding this black and white focus on like male-female reproduction and what that means. And she's able to defeat that expectation. I think that's still a relevant conversation today for a million bajillion reasons. But in the 70s, I feel like this would have been... Especially for like young women seeing a character like this for the first time on the screen and being like, whoa, (laughs) that's cool. She's badass. And I love that her or Lambert isn't the one that gets attacked by the face hugger. Not only because it's more scary that it's a man and that's, you know, quote unquote, unnatural by Mm -hmm. cisgender standards, but just the idea that that is already something we see in horror and we see in life. Women are assaulted and forced to carry a lot of burden with them, whether it be a physical being in the form of child or scars from their assault in that way. And we don't really see the women being victimized in that way. I mean, we do see that there's an element of sexual aggression with Lambert's death with like the tail snaking up her leg. Yeah. Because we don't really see what happens after that. But the fact that the butch and her cat survive, like I just fucking love that. I love that too. (laughs) And and also thinking about Lambert too, 
Because if I'm thinking about like stereotypical performances and horror, but also the trivia earlier about these characters written to be kind of genderless, I still think that even though Lambert is like a scared woman, I still think we don't see her portray any more fear than we see Parker and Brett portray. I feel like the three of them are all just as scared and we hear them scream and yell. And I I think that it shows it's not just women in horror movies that are scared or in life that are scared. You know, it could be anybody because these things are fucking scary. You could even bring Dallas into the equation. Like he might not be screaming, but I think when Dallas starts to shut down, when Ripley tries to talk to him about Ash, I feel like is his fear response. So I feel like everyone in this movie shows fear, even though Lambert, I think showing her fear more overtly is still kind of like, okay, we've seen that before from women. I feel like we also see that from the men in this movie. I agree that fear isn't a feminine emotion. Yes. Crying or screaming isn't necessarily a feminine emotion. And I think we do see a lot of that from women in horror. But the fact that we don't see like Ripley cry. (laughs) Except when she's like, you bitch. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Mm -hmm. And like, it's not just her chasing after the cat. Like Brett's chasing after the cat. Like Mm -hmm. everyone's chasing after the cat. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. there's all these different things that happen. And she's the one the entire time that has been the most smart about the situation. And that is very, you know, on brand for like women knowing what's up in horror movies before a lot of the men do. We just did Barbarian. Tess knew. Yeah. Tess fucking knew. Mm -hmm. And Keith was like, no, I got to go explore. No, you don't. Like you get a vibe and you're like, "Uh, no, you just had a very scary thing attach itself to our guy's face. You guys should maybe stay out there for a day. I mean, you could argue Ash's decision is because he's an android employed by the fucking mother. You know what I mean? But a man would be like, no, we need the science. We need the work. We need the achievement, the specimen. Just the fact that she's still being undermined in that way, in this very specific situation, like it still can come down to that workplace politic is very interesting. Yeah, true. Misogyny is built into the android. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's Alien. Yeah, I think eventually I'd love to do Aliens because there's more ladies in that movie and I want to see more of the Aliens even if Elise doesn't. (laughs) I think, you know, if I could get through level one, then maybe I'm strong enough to get through level 40. Yeah. (laughs) I think your tolerance has been very even lately. Like you've been very good with everything lately. Thank you so much. Especially compared to the beginning. (laughs) Look, I'm working on it. We are working on it out here. And we are working on more movies to cover for you. So we kind of have like an Earth and space theme. The next couple of weeks, we're going to be coming up with some horrors that originate on Earth and in space. So stay with us on this ride. You can follow us at The Horrors Podcast on Instagram, or feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com with any other recommendations, theme ideas, things you would like to see. We would love to hear from you. And until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.